Hey, y'all. We have a new giveaway this week. Thanks to our partner, Beta, we're giving away the Skylight Touchscreen Photo Frame. With the Skylight, you can email photos directly to the picture frame from anywhere at any time, and the photos show up instantly. Think of it as like the modern digital photo frame. You can upload, email, share it with friends, and they can also upload directly. And then you guys can watch the sweet, sweet memories roll in together. The Skylight retails for $159, and you can actually go and try them out at any beta store around the country or learn more at skylightframe.com. Skylight is so easy to use and has 100% satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. Use discount code MISSION for $10 off at beta.com, B-8-T-A dot C-O-M, or sign up for our giveaway at mission.org slash giveaway. Welcome to Mission Daily. Today, Ian is joined by Raul Pathak, General Manager of Big Data, Data Lakes, and Blockchain at Amazon Web Services, where he manages all things blockchain and distributed ledgers for various AWS's products. On today's episode, Ian and Raul discuss why you should be excited about blockchain use to increase efficiency and productivity, the pros and cons of data lakes, and the use of ledgers and data lakes to enhance the employee experience. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And on the other line, Rahul, what's going on? Hey, Ian, how are you? You know, it's a great day, and it's a great day to be talking about blockchain. It is something that is in the news a ton, and we are super excited to talk about big data, data lakes, blockchain, and and everything that you're working on at AWS. Um, But first, how did you get into technology? Uh, So I've been in tech for a while, Ian. I uh, got an undergrad degree in computers and then had my first startup in 99, moved out to the Bay Area. And I've been in tech startups since then, and uh, then joined AWS in 2011, and I've uh, been working on all things data-related um, since that time. And what, when you joined AWS, what was kind of like your your reason or excitement for joining? Like, what was what was the state of blockchain back then, and, and why was this an exciting opportunity? Well, blockchain uh, back in 2011 wasn't really um, actively discussed. So I think for me, it was more about an opportunity to provide uh, customers with the ability to really access large-scale computing and database capabilities at much lower cost than they could in the past. So we were able to get customers out of the business of spending capital um, for buying you know, expensive racks of servers, and instead they could just rent it from AWS by the hour at that time and now by the second. And so that's what drew me uh, to AWS, and then blockchain uh, started to come into the news um, you know, a little later on in my career at Amazon. And I think recently, was it at a conference, or I, I forget, uh, AWS made some big announcements about blockchain services. I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about, I guess, you know, taking a step back, how does AWS, you know, look at blockchain? You know, why are you investing in the area? Why are you excited about it? Yeah, so uh, a couple of years ago, we were just paying attention to Uh, what was happening in the industry around blockchain. And we really wanted to learn from our customers about what problems it really solved for them uh, rather than just get involved because of all the hype. And, um, you know, as we learned more about what customers needed, 
uh, we realized that there was a real opportunity for uh, some use cases that were uniquely served by blockchain. And that's why we announced a managed blockchain service at reInvent, which is our annual user conference in uh, November, late November last year. And um, along at the same time, we also announced a service called QLDB, which is uh, sort of the other side of the use cases we saw, uh, which related to customers that needed uh, just a ledger, but didn't need all of this, the distributed trust capabilities of a blockchain. And what were some of the early, you know, like customer feedback? What were some of those early learnings from customers? Yeah, so what we found as we dug in with customers is that their use cases sort of split down uh, two particular paths. So there was one case where customers uh, really just wanted a a ledger which is uh, owned by a single entity. So imagine uh, something like a DMV that's trying to track vehicle ownership and registration history. And they wanted the ability to track that in a way that couldn't be modified or tampered with. And so that was uh, a case where they needed uh, a verifiable tamper-proof record of what had happened, but they didn't need any distributed trust. So that was uh, really about centralized use of an immutable record, and that's what we aimed QLDB at. And the second use case was where we found that customers actually did have a connected network of partners, and they were they wanted to be able to independently verify and audit what had taken place uh, in terms of the transactions between them. And so in this scenario where you've got multiple parties participating and you didn't really want any one person to control the record of what had happened, that was really the place where we saw uh, these enterprise blockchain frameworks playing uh, playing a role. So those allow customers to uh, agree upon how they decide that transactions are valid and then record them in a ledger that's distributed to all of the participants. So each person has their own copy. And that was the key difference that we found is that there's a need for uh, maintaining a history uh, that can't be changed. But in some cases, customers were comfortable with a single entity owning it. And in other cases, they wanted uh, the ability to distribute it across everyone that was participating. And so kind of like you were saying, there's there's such a history of like, you know, economic and financial activity that happens you know, using ledgers. So it seemed like the logical extension for organizations to be able to have ledger-like functionality. And I'm curious, you know, what were those kind of like light bulb moments for customers? What were the things that they immediately saw the use case of and kind of knew that that would be something that they could use QLDB? And also, which which stands for Quantum Ledger Database. Uh, I'm, That's I'm, right. I'm getting that right, yeah. Yes, that's right. It's the abbreviation for Quantum Ledger Database. And, um, you know, I think what we found is that, uh, you know, if you think about customers like the DMV example, you know, what they're really trying to do is maintain an audit log of what had happened. And historically, they've been using databases for this. And that's fine and it works, but you have to build a a lot of scaffolding around the database to um, ensure that the data hasn't been changed. For example, an admin could have gone in and edited records and you might not know uh, if they're able to delete their tracks. And so with QLDB, what we've done is we've sort of flipped the concept of a database um, inside out. And so QLDB starts with a journal uh, or a log, and that's append only. So customers can only write changes to that log, and the full history of those changes is maintained. And what we do is we provide 
cryptographic verifiability. So we make sure that cryptographically no change uh, and no element of that history can be modified. Uh, and if it were modified, uh, it would render everything that came after it invalid and it would be easy to figure out that it had been a tamper, had been attempted, or someone had tried to change it something. So in those cases, customers instantly got that uh, QLDB would really solve their audit log problems and um, and would give them this uh, verifiable record. So the, uh, you know, a DMV type use case uh, is one that's uh, fairly common. The other one that we worked with was a customer called uh, Health Direct Australia. And their role is to actually provide health information things like uh, clinic hours and uh, who doctors are and what their specialties are to the Australian population. And they're required to be able to prove the accuracy of the information that they've shown at any point in time. So QLDB was a perfect fit for them because they can record what they've shown to a customer in QLDB. And so, and that record is uh, tamper-proof and can be verified at any time. So anytime they have to go back and prove what they showed, uh, they have that permanent record in QLDB. So it really simplified their architecture. Does this mean shorter lines at the DMV? That's the real question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what we're all hoping for. Um, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think that it's it's something that is so obvious for a lot of, you know, like government organizations or, I mean, I guess, you know, any any organizations need need to be able to protect their data. But for a government organization where there's potentially you know, so much at stake. It seems like it's a no brainer. Was there some type of kind of like pushback that you get from organizations that are kind of like trying to figure out how to use it or find use cases? Um, or is it kind of one of these scenarios where they want to do it and they just don't necessarily have uh, the bandwidth yet? Yeah, so I think for customers who have a use case, like if you imagine healthcare providers that need to maintain a record of how their equipment was uh, maintained or modified or HR and payroll departments that need to keep track of what's happened to an employee's history. Uh, they've either been using databases uh, with a lot of scaffolding for audit trails or they had been using blockchain frameworks which are unnecessarily complicated for their use case. So for those customers, when we talk to them about QLDB, uh, they get it almost instantly and then it becomes a question of, uh, how can we start using this and how does this fit into our architecture? So we haven't really seen uh, customers push back because I think when they have a need, they really recognize how much work they've been doing that QLDB really eliminates. And so is QLDB different from the managed blockchain service, which was just made generally available or like what's the difference between those two things? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, the key difference comes down to uh, this notion of centralized trust or decentralized trust. So if you're a single company and you need to maintain a record for yourself, you don't need to necessarily uh, deal with voting or consensus or uh, getting other people to agree that what you're recording is valid. What you want to do is just record something that you know can never be modified because the system itself doesn't allow you to change any data that's uh, that's in it. And so uh, in those cases where what customers are looking for is a central record that can't be modified, where they're comfortable with centralized trust, then QLDB gives them exactly that. It's a single ledger. Uh, it's built to ensure data integrity, completeness, and verifiability. 
and um, and they can maintain that record and know that it hasn't been changed and it gives them a familiar database interface uh, to query the history of changes as well as to look at uh, the state of the world as it exists today. So uh, for centralized scenarios, QLDB is the way to go. But if you um, think of a situation where you've got uh, multiple participants who may be loosely connected, so imagine supply chain. So Nestle, for example, is a customer of the managed blockchain service, and they have a huge network of suppliers um, up and down their food value chain. And so for them, uh, what they want is they want each participant to state what they're about to do, and then they want to have a sort of a voting and consensus mechanism so they can say, okay, you said you're going to do this. I verify that you have. Now we're going to record that record. And so that idea of distributed trust where multiple parties need to agree before you store something in the record uh, is where the blockchain framework comes in. And so that uh, enables that use case for distributed consensus. And then uh, there's also a ledger in the blockchain case, but that ledger is actually replicated to all of the participants. So each participant in Nestle supply chain can have a copy of the ledger for themselves to verify for themselves. And it's that difference between a single central ledger versus distributed consensus and a distributed ledger that really drives down to the QLDB versus blockchain use cases. So, you know, on a previous episode, we were talking with the folks at at ISICS about how you potentially have a company where, let's say they have, you know, a thousand SKUs, but each of those SKUs is something different, you know, if it's sold in uh, a gas station versus a, you know, wherever it is. So you'd have, you know, the same exact product SKU. So let's say like some, I don't know, Apple Apple bars or something like that, that that's that, that SKU made by the company is a different SKU in all of their you know, places that they're distributing that. So it gets extremely confusing because you have the same product with multiple SKUs across like multiple different places. So the supply chain can be super crazy. And so kind of what you're saying is that if that, you know, Apple bar goes from one place to the next, that both sides need to agree that the exact unit that is going from one place to the other has been delivered and then accepted by the other place. Is that kind of right? Yes, that's exactly right. So you can essentially have people agree that, yes, um, you know, I sent you this Apple bar, you agree that I did, so I'm going to record that in this blockchain, and then each of us will have a copy of that record. And then you can say, okay, then I got it from you and I sent it to this outlet, and we can agree that that happened, and then we can both have that record added, and then each of us will maintain our own copy of that uh, transaction history. So that notion of distributing both the history of what happened as well as setting up a policy around how multiple parties can agree that a thing that they're stating happened in fact did happen, that's that's really the crux of the blockchain use case. And, and so where we see um, the managed blockchain service come into play is where customers have these complex networks where they don't necessarily own each of the nodes in the network, and they might be working with partners and downstream uh, providers. So, for example, uh, the Guardian Life Insurance Company, uh, you know, they have a huge network of uh, providers, of agents, of brokers. And so for them, they're looking to use blockchain to essentially make a record of how their policies and payments flow through this network and have a easily verifiable lineage of what happened. 
And so that uh, that's a natural fit for Amazon managed blockchain, and they're using the Hyperledger Fabric uh, network for that. Or another example is uh, Sony Music and digital rights. So they're looking at uh, using the Amazon managed blockchain service to essentially keep track of the rights associated with intellectual property and music produced by their artists. So where did this, which distributor did it go to? Where did it end up getting played? How many times did it end up getting played? That whole complex network of things is what they're trying to record so that they can make sure the right people get compensated in the right way. And so are these folks already AWS customers and then also using this or is is it standalone? And then yeah. Also, who are the types of people that you're working with for this? Is this are you working directly with CIOs, with CTOs, like um, you know heads of supply chain? Like who who are the different kind of stakeholders in this? Yeah. So it's it's definitely a mix. I mean, we have uh, you know AWS has millions of customers at this point, and many of them have these use cases. So we definitely talk to uh, existing customers, but we've also seen folks that want to take advantage of sort of the ease of use and ease of administration that uh, the managed blockchain service provides. And they've come to us as net new customers uh, wanting to take advantage of uh, the AWS's reach and global deployment capabilities uh, to build their blockchain applications. Wow, and that's really, crazy. That's really interesting. It's, yeah, it's been uh, it's been really fun to see what customers have been looking at and what they're really trying to do. So, you know, we talked a little bit about Guardian Life and Sony Music, uh, but the Singapore Exchange, they're looking at multi-party settlement of payments. Um, It's really worldwide. We're talking to customers about what they're doing. And the conversations do span from CIOs to uh, the heads of particular segments. So, um, you know, we're definitely having C-level conversations as well as then diving deeper into implementation as we understand what our, our customers are trying to achieve. And how involved are you in those conversations as GM? Like, I'd imagine that obviously you have a view of the whole organization, but I'm curious, like, how much are you working on those specific things? Like, how much do you spend with customers versus working on product and, and that kind of balance? Yeah. So for us, um, you know, AWS and Amazon, we're really oriented towards making sure that we're paying close attention to what customers need. So uh, I spend a a significant portion of my time with customers uh, or with partners who are implementing solutions uh, just to really understand what they're trying to accomplish and making sure that we have a tight loop of feedback between uh, the customers and ourselves. And, you know, that's that really helps us make better decisions about how to evolve our products and services. But also, this is a, a relatively new category for everybody. And so, learning about what's working and where customers need help, that's uh, that's also incredibly valuable. Yeah, so when you're talking to, to CIOs and CTOs and kind of listening to some of the things that, some of those challenges, what comes up? Like, what are the things that they're saying to you that are kind of those those clear pain points where you're kind of saying, hey, you know, I know this is a new use case, but uh, this is, this is, seems like this would be the exact fit for what kind of you need. Yeah, so there's, um, there's a couple of them. I mean, I think with uh, QLDB and the, you know, the immutable ledger that it provides, I think their uh, customers can identify pretty quickly that uh, where this would fit. And they have so many systems of record in 
finance or HR or transaction flows that uh, they're looking to keep track of. And so uh, when we talk to them about QLDB's capabilities, I think they get uh, excited and start to think about use cases and how it might be implemented. Uh, on the blockchain side, we see a couple of things. I think one is we see customers who have already started experimenting with, say, for example, running their own Hyperledger fabric networks. Typically, they find that it's uh, complicated to set these things up and keep them running and secure and scaling. And so for customers that have already started experimenting, uh, the Amazon managed blockchain value proposition is really clear because it essentially eliminates all of that complexity of managing this yourself. And it also provides um, built-in scalability and availability so we can make sure that network grows as your load grows and we can make sure that your nodes stay available. And then we've got uh, encryption and security baked in. And we've also modified uh, the Hyperledger Fabric framework to use QLDB technology so it scales better and performs better. Um, and so in those cases, it's a very easy switch for customers because we're compatible with all of the APIs of the framework and they just get all of the benefits of the managed service. And then there's a second class of customers where we talk to them about their overall challenge. And um, in some cases, they've um, they've been looking at either database technology or are curious about blockchain technology to work on things like supply chain traceability or multi-party settlement. And um, with a managed service, it just makes it really easy for them to run experiments so they can get their network set up in minutes and start to experiment with what uh, what can work, knowing that they can scale into production as they get their application to a state that they're happy with. So uh, it really does span across all levels of maturity from, you know, what is this and how can it benefit me to I've already started and I want a better way. And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what does this look like in terms of, you know, blockchain adoption, especially in the enterprise over, you know, the next five years. We've seen the stats about, uh, you know, I think it's something like 85% of, this is Deloitte, I think said 85% of enterprises say they invest $500,000 or more in blockchain, annually in blockchain. You're seeing some like, you know, investments, but not necessarily, you know, companies being dependent on kind of blockchain technology, where, where are we kind of headed for all this stuff? Is it just going to be like, we're going to look back and say, I, I can't believe we ever lived without this thing? Like, I'm, I'm curious what you think. Um, you know, I think from our perspective, we're already seeing customers in production with use cases that were much more inefficient before. So, um, you know, when you couple that with the interest that we're seeing and the fact that, you know, if we look across companies and enterprises, they're typically more connected and more global than ever before. I think we're going to see a lot more adoption in sort of key areas for the company. So if you look at Sony Music, I mean, digital rights is sort of fundamental to uh, what they do and how they work with their um, their artists. So it's, it's really a key part of the company. Same with Nestle. They're looking at supply chain transparency for their key products. So companies will rely on this um, more and more. So we're excited about the possibilities um, for blockchain and for QLDB. I think, uh, you know, the need for ledgers and systems of record has existed for a very long time and will continue to be 
something that matters to to the enterprise. So we're we're optimistic and uh, look forward to working with customers on this. Let's get into data lakes. For those of our listeners who don't know, I want to start with kind of like data lake 101. Um, like what is a data lake? Why should customers use one? Sure. Uh, so the idea with the data lake is it's a place where customers can bring all of their data, um, regardless of the format or how it was created. They could bring it into a data lake. They can um, essentially register that data in their lake. They can protect it. They can set up policies around who can access it and then enable uh, their own users and experts uh, to perform analytics and machine learning across all of their data. And this is a bit of a change from um, the prior paradigm where if you think about it, all data used to live in databases and in data warehouses and systems like ERP systems. And uh, these were expensive and data was structured in tables. And so customers would make decisions about what to keep and what to throw away. And um, and if you look at today, what you're finding is that the volume of data is exploding. So we've got much more data being generated than it was before. And what we're seeing is, uh, you know, roughly a 10x increase in data every five years. And then the types of data that's being generated is changing as well. So you've now got not just tables, but you've got things like semi-structured data like JSON from social media or from uh, application logs. You've got mobile device logs. Um, And then you've got things like IoT systems that are pushing out metrics continuously. And then we're also moving to more of a a DevOps culture and containers where you're trying to instrument your application. So this explosion in type and volume of data is what's led customers to look for another approach from data warehouses. And so data lakes give them that. They can bring data as it's generated. Uh, We provide capabilities that make that data easy to understand and to reformat if needed and to protect. And then once you've defined who can access what, you can sort of set people free to analyze data using their technologies of choice without getting in each other's way. So is this process easier or more difficult than in the past? Like it seems like because it's unstructured that it's potentially easier to be able to drop all of that into all that data into a lake. Am I am I wrong there? No, you're right. I, it is, um, you know, there's a, it's a bit of both. So it's easier to get data in, but it can be challenging once you've got it in in whatever format and came in to sort of make sense of what you have. And um, that's really where we spend a lot of time um, and energy at AWS. And so for us, uh, when we talk about data lakes, we have uh, a service called S3, which is our storage service. And that's designed to be very low cost and very high scale and able to bring in all the data that customers have. And then we've uh, just announced a service in GA called LakeFormation. And what LakeFormation does is it it actually can crawl and inspect all the data in your lake and infer its structure. So it can say that, oh, this looks like a table. These are the elements in the table. I'm going to store this in a catalog. Uh, So in the future, if you need to get at that data, you can just go to this catalog. Then you'll see the table structure and you'll know how to access that data. And so LakeFormation lets you... Uh, discover the structure of all of the data that you put in your data lake and it stores that structure in a catalog. And the customers can uh, can then add things like descriptions and tags to that data. So you can 
identify things that are uh, PII that need to be protected, or you can add uh, metadata that allows people to search for data sets related to suppliers, for example. So this discovery and cataloging is automated in LakeFormation. And then the other thing that we've done uh, with LakeFormation is made it easy for customers to define a data access policy alongside the data in their catalog. They're able to say, you know, hey, I'm going to say that only these roles can access these columns. So, you know, your analyst one isn't allowed to see any personally identifiable information, but our legal department is able to see anything. Uh, and so you can set up these rules and access policies, and um, and then that's enforced regardless of how people are accessing the data. And so what this allows customers to do, and this is something we hear really across the board from our customers, is uh, they'd like to be able to understand what data they have, and they want to give access to that data in a controlled way, broadly, so that people can experiment and learn and develop uh, new capabilities for the company. And so that's what LakeFormation is aimed at. It's aimed at making it easy to understand what's in your data lake, uh, and then to protect it and govern it, and then uh, provide wide access to it, knowing that the policies that you've put in place are being enforced. And then the third set of capabilities in LakeFormation is uh, really around data transformation. And so we have the ability to uh, convert data from one format to another. Maybe it's coming in in raw JSON form and you need to make it more efficient for querying. So it can do that automatically and there's no servers to manage. And then we've also built in some machine learning capabilities uh, based on technology we've developed at Amazon over the years. And so uh, the first set of these is around uh, eliminating duplicates in your data sets. So if you have for example, two data sets that are the same, but they've been labeled different things, uh, it, this will be able to identify that and ask you if you want to really treat them as the same thing. And so that helps customers clean up their data. Uh, and this was technology we developed to help us clean up our catalog and customer data on our Amazon.com uh, e-commerce uh, side of things. Oh, that's funny. I didn't realize that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, we've... Um, you know, we've got a long history in machine learning on the on our e-commerce side, and so uh, we're making that same technology available in our services to our customers on AWS. Do you have any examples of customers or folks that have have used that um, and seen some really good results from it? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it really runs the range. Like if you look at customers that have been using um, our data lake technology overall, so you've got folks like uh, Epic Games, they have uh, tens of petabytes. I don't know if you have uh, or know of people that play Fortnite, um, but all of the Fortnite analytics uh, goes through uh, S3 data lakes. So they have uh, all of the events being generated by millions of people playing the game all of that comes into uh, S3, and then it's cleaned up and transformed into uh, query-efficient formats. And then it's uh, presented both on real-time dashboards as well as to their analysts who are looking to uh, understand how people are interacting with the game and then um, make tweaks to make it more engaging. And so they've been uh, really successful, and they have tens of petabytes uh, of data in S3. I don't know if you're familiar with FINRA, but they regulate all U.S. equities trading. So about 150 billion market events per day pass through their systems, and they've uh, they're using um, AWS 
State Lakes to bring in all this data and then to analyze the market for bad actors and look for things like insider trading or fraud, uh, both in real time as well as um, using batch models that they've developed. So uh, it's really, I think at this point, uh, tens of thousands of data lakes on AWS with customers using this technology just because it gives them capabilities in terms of cost and scale they just haven't had before. That's, I'm sure a lot of our listeners either play Fortnite or have kids that play Fortnite. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, so with like kind of data access and security and with the ability of, you know, that access to data within the data lake, um, I'm curious if there are any other examples that you have that are kind of those sort of use cases where different people within the organization, kind of like you mentioned earlier, having, you know, hey, le only legal can touch this or only certain certain folks can touch this. Uh, I'm curious if there's any examples there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so for example, Panasonic Avionics, um, they're actually one of the world's leading providers of uh, in-flight entertainment systems and communication systems. So they wanted to be able to manage the security settings for all of the different applications in their environment, uh, and all of these have slightly different needs. And so by using the lake formation catalog and security capabilities, they can actually set up individual uh, permissions that relate to data and data access for each of these applications and each of their different customers, so they can ensure that uh, they know who's using what data, and, um, and then they have a central record of that that they can go and audit. Um, and a similar use case is with uh, Amgen, one of the world's largest biotech companies. And so if you can imagine if you're in pharmaceuticals or healthcare and life sciences, you're uh, very heavily regulated in terms of who's allowed to see what and knowing what's been done with data. Uh, but at the same time, you want to be able to allow your uh, analysts and employees to see data that they have permission to see so that they can think about how they can use that data to improve the business. And so what they've done is uh, similar to what Panasonic Avionics did, where they take uh, the lake formation catalog and use it to set up granular access policies, but still maintain a central point of control. And so this lets them essentially set data free because they can, they can define the policy and they know that whatever analytics service, whether it's uh, Spark on EMR or data warehousing through Redshift that customers use, uh, they'll have those policies enforced and they'll have a record of who tried to access what. So same question as before. I'm curious, like what's next? What do the next five years hold with data lakes? What are some other use cases that you think maybe aren't front of mind for folks, but are going to pop up um, really soon? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think the use cases are really only going to continue to explode. If you think about it, um, on the data side, we're continuing to generate more and more data. You know, we're moving from today where we all have cell phones and smart devices, but you know, those things like smart watches are now a huge category. You're gonna have sensors embedded in more and more things. And so that volume of data that's coming off uh, is gonna continue to grow. And um, the other thing that we're seeing is that the need to protect data and to understand who accessed it uh, is also going to continue to grow and evolve, and you can see that with um, uh, you know the various regulations that are popping up around the world around privacy and around who has access to what. 
Um, and so what you have is data volume exploding, you have the need for more control of data, but I think you also see customers realizing that data is a key strategic asset for their businesses. And so they need to be able to uh, operate with data and use it to help them improve their businesses um, and drive competitive advantage while still complying with everything uh, that's related to regulation and data protection. And so, uh, you know, I think the the use cases are, are manifold and they will grow dramatically. And um, I think the other thing that we'll see is the uh, integration of a lot of uh, real-time data, so streaming feeds coming in, uh, will also essentially be part of this data lake and analytic environment. And uh, I think the other big trend that we're already seeing is really around machine learning and uh, using all of this data to make better predictions. Yeah, I'm I'm curious how, how AI plays into some of this. And I, I don't know if you have any particular thoughts on AI, but um, especially with the predictive analysis. Um, yeah, I can share a couple of things. So, um, you know, for example, uh, if you're in the U.S., you file taxes every year, I hope, on uh, in April. And um, a lot of people use uh, TurboTax by Intuit. So TurboTax Online uh, actually has a real-time fraud system built into it. So it, can, uh, it tries to detect fraud as you're filling out your taxes in their web application. And that is actually a machine learning model for fraud detection that's built on a service uh, we offer called Amazon SageMaker. And so as you're um, putting in data, the model is sort of scoring whether or not it thinks it's fraud. And then once uh, they have a prediction, they match that with reality. And then they use that to stream data back into their data lake to retrain their models and improve them over time. So there's an example of you know, a, a customer uh, Intuit that's uh, taking advantage of all of the things that we've talked about here, data lakes and machine learning to, to really help drive down fraud when it comes to taxes, which is their area of focus. Yeah, we, you know, and we had Atticus Tyson, uh, the CIO of Intuit on the, on the show, uh, like, 10 or 15 episodes ago. Um, oh, cool. They're doing a bunch of amazing stuff. It, it's really, it's really interesting. And it kind of shows the power of when you have such, you know, different types of products in the market that all are around the same sort of, you know, portfolio of, you know, issues and just how important trust and security is, uh, how you can be creative with all of those new kinds of technologies to, you know, to support your customers. Right. Yeah, no, I think um, it really gives our, it gives companies an opportunity to really improve uh, the, their their customer experience for their own customers and, um, you know, create, um, create unique value uh, for customers just based on suggesting things based on what they've learned by having uh, a broader view uh, that can help uh, individuals get a better relationship with the company. Last question um, before our lighting round. What about employee experience? You know, it's something that is super important going forward, how employees within an organization can better be supported to do their best work. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on like how, um, you know, ledger technology, blockchain, data lakes, all of this could support employee experience. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think, um, you know, in a similar way to how it helps customers, it can also help employees within organizations. So, you know, one big part of uh, what we do at AWS, for example, is look at 
uh, how our services are being used, trying to understand which features matter to customers, which ones maybe we haven't missed, uh, we haven't hit the mark on. And so having easy and convenient ways to uh, access and understand this data without having to, um, you know, go through complicated processes to, to figure out whether or not you're allowed to see it or not, having that all predefined so that you can just get in there uh, and do your job and focus on how you can get your job done um, more quickly and more efficiently with less busy work. That's, um, you know, that's a big benefit um, in the day-to-day, and it allows us to spend less time on things that don't add value and really focus on how we can make a difference. So I, I think applying all of these technologies internally uh, is something that we we just do, and it uh, it's beneficial because it allows us to iterate faster and, and develop more on behalf of our customers. And I think that would apply to other customers as well. I think there's definitely an opportunity to look at how internal processes could be improved uh, with these technologies. All right, let's get in the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the lightning platform from Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash employee experience to learn more about employee experience on the world's number one CRM. Lightning fast questions and answers. Rahul, are you ready? All right, let's do it. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? It's the most fun, Twitter. Favorite time-saving tool? Oh, it's uh, an app on my computer that uh, allows me to save little snippets that expand into shortcuts and phrases that I use a lot. That's fun. What about favorite thing to cook or eat? Uh, Steak on a grill. Favorite podcast or book that you've listened to or read recently? A book is an audiobook. It's The Art of Learning. Hmm. Sounds like a good one. What about your favorite vacation spot? Uh, it's got to be my uh, most recent, which was Koh Samui in Thailand. Ooh, that sounds fun. What do you do for fun? I am a big airplane nerd, so I love to take pictures of planes and um, trying to get a pilot's license. What? is your best advice for a first-time GM? Ask a lot of questions and ask why a lot. Rahul, this has been absolutely awesome having you on the show. So excited to be able to chat about this stuff with you. we got to have you back. You are uh, a fountain of knowledge on all things blockchain and uh, ledgers, data lakes, all that stuff. Um, but also you have open recs on your team. You are hiring. Um, where can folks find you on, uh, on LinkedIn or on the Twitters to, uh, to try to join the, uh, join the awesome team? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we are. We're hiring in engineering and product, um, in Seattle, Palo Alto and New York and Vancouver. And you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look for Rahul Papak and, uh, my Twitter handle is at Rahul Papak. So either way, uh, look forward to hearing from folks. Awesome. And we'll link those up in the show notes. Any final thoughts? I uh, know this has been a ton of fun. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. 
Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.